Hollywood was very much a toxic culture. I cannot overstate that. I mean, it still is, but back then it was very much grab while the grabbing is good. Work, work, work. And I did that. I believe that your personal life and your professional life are inherently linked. And when you do the work on both sides, you can become the most successful version of yourself. This is a place where wisdom meets leadership, where success meets spirituality. Welcome to Do the Work with Denise Love Hewitt. You know when something comes up repeatedly and you're like, okay, universe, I heard you. There was a week a few months ago where the book Power Versus Force by David Hawkins must have come up five times in conversation in a week. In a week. So I surrendered. I got it. I got the memo. I bought the book. And I understand after I got the book why I was supposed to get the book. Because I spent my 20s trying to make things happen, to will things into existence, to force the universe's hand. And to be honest, it didn't work for me. I'd get the dream job, realized I hated the job. I'd have an arbitrary goalpost and I'd get there, sort of be apathetic about it. Or I wouldn't get there. And I'd be disappointed that I didn't get there. And so I started to focus on the process. And that's been great. I love the process. It's been nice to be more present in the work that I do. But power versus force, what it really talks about is about our inner power. And when we surrender to it and trust the universe has our back, things will naturally unfold. And if we allow ourselves to be in a state of reception, we're not holding our dreams by their neck. We're actually letting, giving it the space to show up. Because force is also exhausting. Having spent the better part of a decade doing that and making big career tentpole goals, like things that look great on a resume, they left me burnt out. They left me, you know, more moody, like not the best version of myself. And when I say power versus force, what I need to clarify is that it doesn't mean that we're not doing anything. It doesn't mean that we're not following up on that email. It doesn't mean that we're not still taking steps, but it means we're not chasing. And energetically and spiritually, that's a different thing. And so I think that's what we need to realize is when we're trying to act like the universe doesn't have a hand in our lives, that is force. The reality is we are only in control of so much. And for me, every time I've tried to exert force, the universe has redirected me anyways. And so if I just allow it to do what it's going to do and co-create with the universe, I have found that I am happier. I've been trying it out. Things are working better. I feel better. And listening to the universe is a tool we can all employ to make our lives better. And so I ask you, as you look at the work that you do, are you exerting force or are you sitting in your inner power? So today we have the lovely Jessica Bendinger. Jess and I met early on in my startup journey, and she was like a quick dip in frozen water. That's the best way to explain it. It was like a bit <laughs> of a shock to my nervous system, largely because Jess is hyper intelligent and she really challenged me on what I was building in a really productive way. And so it was really productive, also a little scary because I felt uh, a little inadequate compared to her genius. Um, And I was a little intimidated because if you don't know, Jess wrote one of my favorite movies of all time. She wrote Bring It On. And when I met her, it's probably the most embarrassing moment maybe of my life. I devolved into the Clover's dance um, because I knew all of it and still do. Um, And luckily it wasn't, she didn't think it was embarrassing. I later was like, wow, Denise, 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 get it together. (laughs) 
But as I've gotten to know Jess, she's become one of my greatest teachers and friends. She's super supportive, thoughtful, and very curious, always reading, exploring, learning. She has so many fun tools she's introduced me to, and she's wildly creative beyond being a very, very accomplished screenwriter and director. She's also behind the hit podcast, Mob Queens, which if you haven't checked out, you certainly should. And I'm so excited to have you here. Oh my gosh, Denise, I love you so much. It's so great to see you. I know it's gonna be so fun. It is um, so fun, and I've loved the show. And I'm it's so, I'm so excited to be on it and talking to you and having one of our magical combos for yeah. everyone to listen to. Hopefully, <laughs> yeah. And so Jess and I have some things that we've sort of you know been able to sort of relate on. And one of those things is I call it the cost of being too future. Uh, sometimes mm. we are doing work at a time when the market's not quite ready or um, we're a little ahead of the macro, like as the, as the trends are hitting a tipping point. And so I feel like I want to hear a couple things. One being like being a woman in Hollywood at the time that you were coming up and creating the work that you were creating was like, if it's hard today, which we know it is, it was, it is most definitely was harder 20 years ago at a time where there were very few women directors and very few women like working their way through the system. So I want to talk about that, those challenges. And then on top of that, creating work that in a lot of ways was very ahead of its time, you know, bring it on to me is a movie that is about cultural appropriation really prior, I think, before we had the language to even call it cultural appropriation. And so, you know, knowing that like that phrase wasn't even like cultural consciousness and you're pitching this movie about this thing, I really just want to like dig into like what that must have felt like. And also, as I know, like the trauma associated. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Well said. Well, first of all, the early tax, I just want to talk about the early tax or the head, the ahead of the curve tax is a real test in your own North Star when you're first venturing out into the world as a person, as a creative person with an opinion. And I had a great deal of certainty about the idea. So I knew cheerleading and hip hop were both things that I loved and I was confident for a lot of reasons involving 10,000 hours in my background and my exposure and confidence to kind of believing in your own creativity through my mother, who's a jazz trombone player, if you can believe it, a professional musician. So talk about gig economy back in the days of the 70s when that wasn't even a term we used. And my father, who was um, in advertising, a slogan, kind of a senior creative director at all the agencies on Michigan Avenue. And I saw him carving a path for himself I'll be in advertising. So I kind of like to say I have bullshit in my blood a little bit. Like my dad was pitching slogans for brands. Like he was in the epicenter of capitalism, really, but making his own little creative spot for that. And my mom was gigging, playing her horn, going on the road, scraping together a living. Then as a single mother, because they split up when I was very young. So it was, I was like, thrown into the feral, you know, like all Gen Xers, we were thrown out of the house at age five and like asked to fend for ourselves. So that built a lot of confidence around having to defend, let's call it defend your thesis, right? Very early on. Pitching this idea, I knew from watching my dad pitch that even if you didn't get a yes, if if somebody was kicking it up to their boss, you were in play. And so really by the grace of that exposure as a kid, I knew that no wasn't like, that there was a maybe no. And I just had confidence in my um, exposure to culture, having gone to college in New York and 
covered hip hop at Spin Magazine at a young age and worked at MTV at a young age. And just knowing kind of what was cool, I just had a belief that it was cool. So, but then you come here and you're pitching it and somebody says, well, girls don't go to movies. And you're like, that is preposterous. And so your certainty gets forged. You become very oppositional very quickly, which people don't like, by the way, P.S. People don't like a strong woman with opinions, especially in Hollywood. So I would go into these meetings and I just tried to be charming and funny about what was an absurd, what were the absurd things I was hearing about the market. And little did I know then, which I now know fully, like I knew way more about the market than they did because I was the market. And because of my father and because of my mother and because of looking at audiences, not just from the focus group perspective of my dad being in advertising, but also the audience perspective of my mother performing. I had also argue that Hollywood still knows very little about audiences for the record. Yes, that is fair. 100%. But I didn't know that then. Now I know that. Back then I didn't know that. So I just thought I'm just pushing through. I just have to push through with kind of confidence and brio. And so I don't know, man, it was absurd. Some of the comments I heard, it was just absurd. And that kept me going. But then there was enough affirmation. So I'd go, I remember Eric Hughes, who's now very wildly successful interior designer. He was an executive at Turner. And I pitched to him and he took it to his boss and she took it to her boss. And so you'd go back and you're like, okay, they're not, they're not passing. They're wanting their, to take it to their boss. That's a good sign. So I was able to refine it over and over again, over the course of the 28 pitches and the 27 no's, I was refining it. But what do I want to say? Yeah, you're early and you're not saying it's cultural appropriation and cheerleading skirts. There was a bit of conversation I'd been exposed to quite a bit because my mother played traditional jazz, which is New Orleans jazz. So I grew up with this awareness of, wait a minute, minute, my mother's white and she's playing this music from New Orleans. And I've been to New Orleans, you know, there was this sense of cultural disconnect and how the things we appreciate in the culture are very frequently from the black experience, right? Whether it's Elvis, you know, and then in music, they'd make the argument all the way back to Elvis, the Beastie Boys, Vanilla Ice, right? Snow, I just knew in my bones, I just knew in my bones that it was a good idea and that the movie that I wanted to see and needed to see didn't exist. And I thought I had the, I didn't know that I could do it, but I, I certainly was willing to try. And finally, the last time I pitched was with mercifully John Shestak, who I'd known from my music video directing career. He had been at Limelight, which was, had repped me as a director And we had tried to, we'd talked about taking stuff out. And so he was suddenly a beacon. And so I knew him and he knew I did. He knew me from the music video world. So I think he gave me a bit more uh, cred than other people in Hollywood. Like he knew me from a past life. And I think that helped as well. And then Caitlin Scanlon certainly was a huge champion of the movie at Beacon. It's like, you just, it was just the right, she was a New Yorker and she got hip hop. It was like the right things lined up at the, at the the last time I pitched it. And I didn't care at that point. But that's it. The moment we're detached from outcome is the moment things happen, right? So you're like, it is what it is. And then, of course, that's when things start to move. But okay, so then they buy the pitch. They say, okay, we like the pitch. We're going to do this thing. And then there's a lot of process from buying a pitch to releasing a movie and the challenges associated when you're creating a creative thing and then it gets noted to death by, you know, the the studio and that there's that process. What were the challenges for you within that that part of it? Well, the good news was Beacon had an unusual deal with Universal. So we were largely left alone. And, you know, sorry, I'm straining my brain to think back. You know, Caitlin was cool. She kind of got my vibe and 
John got my vibe. I think they trusted me a little bit. And when I was wrong, I certainly pushed back. Look, I did. I had no chops when it came to navigating notes back then. This was my first project. So I was awful. I was like, you're wrong. You're wrong. Like I was so broke every rule. I annoyed them. We annoyed each other. It was very much like uh, trial by fire. And I got burned. Everybody got burned. Like it was not, um, I would not, I would not describe myself as easygoing back then. I would describe myself as passionately convicted. You know, it was scripture. It was dogma. I knew what was cool. They didn't mm-hmm. fuck off. Right. So you get a little bit of a reputation when you're that way, but in a way that movie needed that, right? It needed, I remember John Chestak, I've called him out on this. He's been a good sword about it saying, I don't know about the opening cheer. And I was like, John, I was like, no, I said, you have to have that. They have to, the audience has to know you're in on the joke, right? The audience has to know you're, that we have self-awareness about what a cheerleader represents. If you lose that, like the tongue is out of the cheek, like y- you can't. And so to his credit, you know, he backed off um, and Peyton bravely is coming in. You know, he, he joined the party very late and he's bravely as, a, you know, man trying to honor the vision of the movie. And that was awkward at times as well. But like we, you know, I don't know. It's a, it was very miraculous in retrospect. We were left alone. Nobody cared. Nobody cared. That's how they left us alone. It was a, you know, I think it was an 11 million dollar, 11 million, 12 million dollar movie. And do you think that's largely because they didn't really think it would be what it was? Yes, for sure. I I know the studio, I know marketing knew after we did test screenings, marketing knew what they had. The studio hadn't been developed there. So there's this phenomenon in in, in Hollywood. It's very, we have to come up with a funny term for it. But, you know, when you don't develop something, you have no skin in the game. You just don't. So Eric Hughes, to his credit, had lobbied for it. In ter- so then by the time we were at Universal, Eric Hughes had moved from, T- from Turner to Universal. And he plays a large part in the story because he, as a gay man from the East Co- with big East Coast cred and a friend of, of SJP, who I would end up working with as well, Sarah Jessica, he had that. He knew it was good. He got it. And right. then Tom Hanks championed it at one point, which is why Playtone released the soundtrack of the movie. And Jonathan Demi championed it at one point. So we had champions that were signaling to the studio, oh, this is something. But they left it alone. We weren't super hassled. And so then it comes out. It's a surprise hit to the studio. It becomes the phenomenon and has the cultural significance that we all know today. And despite doing a ton of money in the box office, I know then you as a writer-director had some more challenges thrown your way, which is like surprising when you have a hit movie, you think, oh, cool. Like, you know, like I'm, I have the calling card now, like everything's going to get easier. Um, Well, first of all, I do want to say it did, by the way, it did get significantly easier. So let's let's not like, let's not overstate the underdog thing. After that moment, I could, if I wanted to work in the girl genre that there were, there were like, there was me and there was, there were two writers you went to, a team and me, that was kind of it. So I got every movie and I worked on, I think I did 20 green lights in a row of just punch up and girl movies. So I was working, but I was working from 1996 to 2004 when I sold Stick It as a spec. I was at a high burn rate. I was definitely in all the things we talk about now around mental health and well-being and the trade-offs you make um, when you're working in a toxic culture. Hollywood was very much a toxic culture. 
I cannot overstate that. I mean, it still is, but back then it was very much grab while the grabbing is good. Work, work, work. And I did that. Yeah. Feast or famine, right? Like that's like, so when you get the moment in Hollywood, you feel like you have to make the most of it and you don't want to lose all the opportunity, the money, because the Hollywood cycle is one that builds you up to tear you down, right? Like that's sort of how it works. Yes. And so I think that's good to know. But I also want to note that you were put into a very specific bucket as a creative, which is also for me, one of the problems of Hollywood is that it limits innovation and ideas because if you make one action movie, you are in you are in the action genre until the end of time. And if you make something else, they can't always translate those two buckets yes. into one. Yes. I this is a great point. And I wanna I want to point out something I wish somebody had unpacked for me back then that nobody did that I'm very aware of now. When we think of Hollywood, I think we tend to think of it as this living organism. It's a living organism made of people. And yes, that is true. But the pipeline of Hollywood itself is very static. Legacy media is a very static, it's a pipeline. And it is about the pipeline. It's not about what's in the pipeline, which is content for audiences. It's about the pipeline itself. And that pipeline has a lot of structural bias. It has structural tension. It has institutional constipation. It has all the things that pipelines have. It's about itself. And I didn't really realize that. I still thought it was about the audiences and it was about, I, it was about audience. It was about success. It was about innovating. No, that was a big mistake. <laughs> Don't get it. This is the best, this is the best part of this podcast that everyone talks about being an entrepreneur or like their career journey. <laughs> Everyone's like, I was wrong. I was really naive. Like all of us, like, we're like we have this big vision of like, I'm going to come in. I'm going to make yeah. change. I'm going to do this thing. Yeah. And then you're just like, so there's some real structural issues in allowing yeah. people to create change. And it's just such a funny theme that runs through this podcast. So I just have to laugh about it because you're saying something from a different perspective, which is not necessarily like the entrepreneur's perspective, but like the creative's perspective, which is, you know, they're similar, but different well, sort of so groups. There are so many things to unpack, but I think there's a fantasy that a lot of creatives have. I think there's a fantasy we all have of like, oh, when I finally make it, I'm, you know, I'm going to get the special exemption tax. And don't we love to go to prom and be prom king and queen? And there's this kind of like slightly infantilized fantasy we all have of whatever that means, whatever that dysfunctional archetype is, there is a whole economy built around supporting that. And all it does is support that. So the agency economy, the agency industrial complex is built to support that. By the way, descended from the mob, which is why I was interested in mob queens. I mean, the roots of the agencies come out of the mafia. This is not conspiracy. This is fact. Yeah, the music industry, um, like agencies, all of it. Yeah. So it's transactional. And then you have the studio executives and the development executives. And so they may have, you know, look, as individuals and great, lots of great people. I know a lot of wonderful people who work for the platforms for the studios. Most of them are trained in the institution of rolling calls. And you know this, Denise, because you worked at a studio. I think the outsiders think, oh, you know, you're, I don't know what I thought. Like, oh, you go to film school and you love film and you're studying how things are made. I don't know what I thought, but it's not what happens. In order to ascend within the pipeline, the pipeline teaches you about itself. It's not teaching you about audiences. It's not teaching you about production. It's teaching you how to roll calls, how to do deals, how to navigate political issues with egos in the system, right? I, yeah, so how to stay in the pack. I mean, the, the reason I left corporate Hollywood was largely because every time I pushed back on groupthink, I was othered and then made to feel left out. And so then at a certain point, you're like, well, if we don't value differing opinions from different audience demographics, then A, what are we doing? 
And B, like then your engine of group think is never going to be that successful. It's where creativity goes to die. It is to me a little beyond group think. It's slightly, yes, yeah, all true, all true. I guess. I'll take a reframe of a word. What do you think? Give me, yeah. give me a better word than group think. Well, I'll give you an example of something that really horrified me when I found out. So I was at an agency for a brief period of time and I really liked my agent's assistant. And she was always working and always frantic and very sweet. And I said, let me take you. To, I was worried about her. And I said, let's have lunch. And so I took, and this is later in my, and she loved bring it on and was always very sweet. And I took her to lunch and I said, how many hours a week do they have you working? And she said, oh God, I don't know, 85. And I said, how much are you making? Oh my gosh, no money. And she said, oh gosh, I think like my take home is like 400 a week. And I choked on my food and I went home. I bought her lunch. I was very shaky. I, I knew this was true. I knew the mailroom industrial complex was a thing, but I did not realize I was part of the, Here's what the moment that happened for me, Denise. I was like, oh, I'm part of an illegal unpaid labor market. I am enabling an unpaid labor market that's actually really toxic. She is never going to ascend. She is never going to get her boss's job. He's never leaving. Also, you'll burn out before you can even move up the uh, ladder. Absolutely. And I said to her, how can you afford this? And she said, my parents subsidized me. And that's then the I thought, way. oh, God, that's the only way. So there was a weird, painful moment where I was like, oh, we're all part of this. We are all enabling this industrial unpaid labor complex, underpaid, unpaid. This is toxic. This isn't fair. They're doing it for the experience coupons, but the experience to nowhere. Like you're, there aren't enough jobs for you all. This is a lie. So anyway, that was one of my big come to Jesus moments where I was like, oh, this is really, oh, I had a big, ugly cry with myself. And I was really like soul searching, man. I was like, this is not this. Okay, let me look at this now. I've heard the thing I didn't want to look at for a long time. And I've seen really talented writers struggle in writer's rooms, like as writer's assistants, and they can never catch the break and never, it's only the ones with the fortitude and the resources to catch the break that catch it. And I was like, this is messed up. This is so obviously, it's just so messed up. And I, and so we've talked quite a bit about this and the fix, fixing it, I don't think it's going to get fixed from the inside. I think the virtue signaling Hollywood does is in direct proportion to its guilt, right? So it spends Q4 of every year lobbying for awards, Q1 of every year giving itself awards. This is indicative of the guilt, in my humble opinion, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yep. It's okay. I want to circle back. Sorry, I went off the rails a little bit. Yeah, no, there is. No, we're, it's good. That's what we're here for. I want to go back, though, to you saying you had like hit this moment burnout, sort of like, you know, a burnout moment, but you did, you know, green light after green yeah. light after green light, then stick it happens. Yeah. And let's talk well, about then stick it happens. There's a lot in, in that moment. But yes, no, we can dig into that. Yeah. a bit. I want to I just really want to talk about in my perspective and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's almost like you, you had all this success and were almost punished for it. Yeah, I'd say there was indifference. I would call it, you know, the pain, you know, the, the opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference. And so mm. there was, there was indifference because the people, the decision makers weren't the audience necessarily, male executives. I was an outlier to a male executive. It, they weren't the audience to the movie. Therefore, I was, a, I was in fluke right. rather than I'm somebody who thought really carefully about audience. And then I built something cool for that audience that then didn't just deliver. They're still talking about it 20 years later and 15 years. That kind of thoughtfulness and architecture and thinking isn't something they do because their jobs, they aren't, their feet aren't held to the fire if a movie is a failure. 
their feet are held to the fire if they piss off CAA. Yeah. So the calculus that studio executives and studios are doing with all due respect, and I know they're trying to make good movies, but frequently the decision-making process and the pipeline of the decision-making process is very different than people would imagine. Who do I owe in a favor to? Who do I not want to piss off? Like there's a lot of that happening. There's a lot of 4D chess happening in the decision-making, which inhibits diversity. It inhibits a lot of things. I mean, you- it's Structural you, bias at its best. And it inhibits ways for the business to move forward in the sort of rapid evolving landscape we live in now in a way that is the reason they're very reactionary and repeating IP is because they're it's, they're not in like, they're not, look, they're in a place- Disney, Disney just got it. When did Disney enter the streaming space last year, right? Of 2020? Je- Jess, if we had gone back, what is it? 10 years ago, when I was at Viacom, the first- the first thing I said to Viacom when they hired me was, we should really build our own streaming platform. Like, we got to get in the game. And everyone's like, Denise, Denise, Denise. No, we just license our content to them. And I'm 23 at the time. And it was like, I was just sat there and I was like, even then, that was like, should have been my first indicator. But 10 years ago, I have the foresight to say, build a streaming platform. And all of them got in the game just in the last year. And it's like, you have the innovators around you. You're just not listening. You're not listening to the people that can see the trend, the futurists. And so you're sinking. Well, and, well, and the culture is not built to do that. I mean, the, right. the culture of Hollywood is just not built to do what you just described. It is not nimble. It never has been. And that's the illusion. I think people have, you think of computer graphics and the special effects or so, you know, it seems so ta- high tech. No, no, no. This is a very old school horse and buggy business. Asses and seats, you know, ex- the exhibitor model is a really old brick and mortar model. Think about yeah. it. Think about the conversion from from film to digital. That happened in my career, like in the course of my career. Think about the exponential scale of YouTube plus phones in 2007. The industry was not ready for that. They were not ready for the complete inversion of power. The power went from the studios and distribution to you got the power in your hand and in your pocket. They were ill-prepared for that. Despite what had happened in the music business, it's been talked about by people much smarter than I am. Um, they were not prepared. So I watched, so I was burnt out. I'd worked on a ton of movies and thought, you know, I need to write something to direct. I wrote stick it on spec. We took it out to buyers. Disney bought it in what's called a, you know, really, this doesn't happen very often. So what I'm about to say to you is rare. Sold it as a spec. I was attached to direct with a progress to production, which meant they had six months to make it. So the pressure is on, which is great. You you need that kind of leverage. And we got it and we got to make the movie. I sold it in, I think, October of 2004. It was in theaters April 2006. That's very fast. Managing a $28 million asset at a studio that is under duress and go- undergoing a coup, a successful coup, So making a movie is hard enough. Then having that going on was very hard. And after Stick It came out and it did really well, it was the number one per screen average and, you know, number one on home video for, you know, (laughs) thank you. And uh, we were on number one on iTunes then for seven straight weeks, which is unheard of now for um, the, the crickets, just crickets. Right. And then for, and then, but when you look at the pull downs, that we had to do on YouTube, it makes sense, right? If you're looking at data then, which nobody was, we had 
you know, the bird box opening, like we had those numbers on YouTube pull downs and very quickly, but nobody was gathering the data. And as I like to say, Hollywood is filled with data refugees. Nobody was looking at data. Nobody saw that coming. Nobody got it. They're scared of it. They're in a, in a taste economy that's built on taste and the culture of the illusion of taste. Numbers are problematic unless you can sell them or sell the person attached to them. Right. So there were nobody was tracking the numbers, much to my chagrin, which led me into this evolution when I met you of being hyper vigilant about data because I had been coming into my coming into an awareness of Hollywood's refusal to mind the store when it came to to data. And I was a benefactor of that data. And and my career like it was also I was trying to do the math for them and be helpful. But the truth was. Hollywood didn't care about the numbers, really. No, they don't. I mean, it cares about the pipeline. Yeah, and the ego and the placating, rather than you know, that's you don't like to. People don't like to speak languages they don't understand, and so data back then was a language nobody understood. And I made it my business to try and understand it. After that, all happened defensively, admittedly. Yeah, and so then you know, post stick it like. Where, where did you come to in sort of like your relationship with the business? Because obviously there's been a number of factors through your experience that were obviously some great positive things, but also a lot of negative things. And how did you like, wh- I know there's some, some trauma associated and I want to understand sort of like where you netted after that. Do you want to speak specifically though? I'm, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to read into what you're, are you trying to go somewhere specifically so I can be more well, I think just accurate just like for you? Feeling like, you know, the business was indifferent, feeling like the business, you know, despite having success, <laughs> didn't really mean that much moving forward because they didn't care about numbers and frankly didn't care about female led films. And so you know, I, yeah. I just like what what does that mean for someone that has, you know, you Ugh. can see this evident, obvious success metrics and then being met with the yeah. same challenges when you're pitching other stuff or things like that. Because I know what that's like when you're like, here's obvious metrics and everyone's like, we don't really care about those metrics because we've decided like our taste and our ego is not going to um, allow us to entertain that. Yeah. Hollywood didn't change overnight. And certainly, you know, Hollywood makes movies that they have skin in the game on. So, you know, I had all those green lights earlier were based on a formula that my agent and I kind of used successfully, which was where to really of all the pro we kind of were stack ranking the submissions back then. So it would be, where have they invested the most capital? Cause they're inclined to make it, you know, and we were re- really cold hearted about the selection process between Bring It On and Stick It. And after Stick It and after carrying a $28 million asset through a building that was on fire, getting through that on time, under budget, number one, you know, all the checking all the boxes, being told when we tested through the roof, it was a false positive from the studio, being told just so much toxic dysfunction from the powers that be. Who had sold the negative before we started shooting, by the way, because they were undercapitalized on Pirates 2 and 3. So they sold our negative. And so they had no skin in the game anymore. And they were annoyed at the success of the movie, I believe. That's how it felt. They were not just annoyed, hostile. I was devastated. I was devastated. I was depressed. I was sad. I, it was like a breakup. Yeah, heartbreak. Yeah. Yeah. I think the thing that broke my heart the most was the misogyny from women. The 
absolute. And look, I have empathy for people who have come up in toxic environments and you have, you become toxic yourself. I get it. I'm in Al-Anon. Like I can relate to a toxic family of origin and a toxic pattern adoption, but the women behaved so badly. I, I, it broke my heart. I've never recovered. Yeah. So I wrote a book, you know, I, my agent said, you know, I said, I need a break. I, I, I need a break. I don't want to, at that point I knew I I didn't, I didn't think it out loud. I I don't think I thought like, I never want to do this again, but it was so um, hard to have given my all to everything that I cared it for so much. It was like my child, you know, I took it very personally. It was like my child and I loved it. And the movie loved me back. The process was great. The cast was amazing. The crew was spectacular. I loved the collaborative part was all fantastic. It was the stuff around that that was just toxic. And I didn't navigate it well. And I certainly didn't handle it well. I was very vocal um, with people that you're not supposed to be vocal with. And therefore, in standing up for myself and standing up for the movie... I was problematic because I wasn't kissing the ring and kissing ass and doing the thing. You know, I was just being a straight Chicago and like straightforward shooter. Here we go. Let's talk. That's not how Disney operated at all. It was definitely a culture of duplicity. In order to survive, you had to smile and stab. And everybody was worse. They were smilers with knives. Let me not mince words. Okay. And so that's hard. You're trying to just make a good movie and somebody is out to get you to like, I did that. It, it that, doesn't allow you to be in like a thriving state, right? It puts you in your surviving mm. self where you're like, that oh, no, doesn't no, no, allow. It's PTSD. Absolutely. No, you're in fight or flight. Yeah. How and can then, art thrive in like. Oh, no, no, no. You're in fight or flight. And by the way, your agents and lawyers, they don't have time. They don't want to hear about it. They don't, you know, they're not the right people for that because they're, they're up in it as well. So in terms of having a support network that can really help you after the movie comes out or whatever that I didn't have that I had therapy, I had friends, but I felt very alone. And I decided to, I decided to write a book. And I also had, by the way, you know, one of the bring it on was so successful. It had created multiple sequels and became the face of this historic injunction on behalf of the writers guild that we successfully prevailed on. But like, it was just fight. It was just, there was so much fighting going on. And I was like, ah, like I can't handle this. It's a, it's like a bad boyfriend. This is a dysfunctional right. boyfriend who's gaslighting me. That's how Hollywood felt. It's it hasn't gone to therapy. This boy, this relationship has not gone to therapy. It's done no work on itself. It's not self-aware. It doesn't care about me. It was like the ultimate sociopathic narcissist. That's what my that's what Hollywood was. And I was dating it. I was I was married to it at that point, And I needed to get out. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, if I can just be the owner of my own creativity and work on that, I can. Right. So I wrote the book and, you know, that wasn't a perfect solution at all. It wasn't real. You know, it wasn't me, but it was me looking at the looking at what I saw and being very alarmed and very much questioning. Is this healthy for me to stay in this? Is this ultimately going to create my great my greatest good good work when I'm so at odds with the way with what's going on. I mean, I'm being, being, being very honest and clunky with you. It wasn't like a, I have much more awareness about it now, but I don't know. It's this weird thing. Like you've invested in this thing and suddenly you're looking at it and you're like, Oh, 
that's how I feel about venture capital. I mean, it was the same experience, which is that, you know, you're, you're in this thing that you think you need to like make your creativity or project work. And then you realize I don't align with the values of this thing. So then what does that mean for me as a innovator, creative, or, you right. know, and then figuring that out. And I want to bring it because you've been such a masterful teacher expander in my life. And I know you've been on a big personal growth journey as well. And sort of what what was the moment, you know, obviously you mentioned you were therapy, but like, did you have tools when you were going through that? Did you find the tools later? What what was like the the personal growth side of this as it was happening? What did that look like? What when you say as it was happening, do you mean like there's a lot in production afterwards? Yeah, like when you were on your ascension in Hollywood, like were you yeah. in therapy then? What were other things you had? Right. Or oh. did you have more of an awakening later? Lord help like- you. Lord help you if you're not in therapy then. But yes, I was <laughs> um very much an advocate and benefactor of the benefits of therapy early on. So I, you know, I was diagnosed with PTSD in my mid twenties. I had a very feral traumatic childhood of only child of divorce and lots of very well-intentioned young, stupid things happened and a lot of good. And there was a lot of post-traumatic growth from that as well. So, but I started therapy at a young age. I did Hoffman, the Hoffman process uh, in 2001, which I really really helped me understand the difference between who I was and the patterns that I'd acquired. It's a great quickie. If you want to understand pattern acquisition, the Hoffman process is a great place to go do that. Um, So I did that. And then I started to understand, oh, people, you know, you do things for a reason. I started to understand why people are the way they are, which was endlessly fascinating to me. And I read a lot of self-help books. I studied with teachers here and there. I was really into Carolyn Mace and sacred contracts. I studied archetypes with her. I considered studying more seriously with her. I would just kind of, wherever my curiosity led me on the personal growth path, I would go there for sure. And uh, a lot of it was research for the seven rays. So I, I researched every metaphysical and personal growth arena there was in order to incorporate that into the book. And that was a great way to, I don't know, innovate around my natural curiosity and create a story there. But yeah, I'm I'm a very curious person and I always want to know why people are the way they are. So that work has served me well and helped me when I'm feeling really confused or defeated, depleted, otherwise burned out. And I somebody gave me the joy of burnout after Stick It came out, and that was a very helpful book for me. Um, lots of, lots of different books on the path that were telling me it's okay to hit the brakes. It's okay to change your mind. It's okay to relearn things like do things differently and relearn them. And one of the things I had to relearn or learn, I did not even relearn. One of the things I had to learn was the difference between compliance and congruence, which is big for women. So a lot of times we comply, we comply, we comply with something like, okay, okay, okay. And then you realize after you've said, okay, 60 times, oh, I don't, I don't want to do that. I'm not congruent. And that's where anger happens. And so female rage, uh, I'm very in touch with my anger. I'm very comfortable with anger. Uh, I carry, you know, the, the warrior archetype big time and I will let it fly if it, if it's appropriate. And I certainly will do that on behalf of somebody who I perceive as being bullied. You know me. So long way of saying learning about compliance and congruence was a bit of a journey. And when I finally got started studying anger and learning about anger, and by the way, Vito Genovese, I owe owe a debt of gratitude to because this, in trying to understand my anger around Hollywood and my anger about what had happened in success of all things, what had happened was 
that I had had to be compliant for the first part of my career, but I wasn't congruent anymore. And that was a big moment of reckoning for me. And I had to really step back and go, oh, okay. So if that doesn't feel good, fitting in at the, you know, fitting in at the, is the opposite of belonging as Brene Brown would say. And I had spent a lot of time hustling and trying to fit in and then realized like, oh, I don't belong here. Really. I don't feel like I belong. I think you said something really important, which is that a lot of people don't understand sometimes also that you can have success and get the quote unquote things you want and it not feel good, right? Because the whole point of what what we talk about in this podcast really is that success is not material wealth, external validation, external recognition. That's a component of like, obviously, like as humans wanting to feel good and completing your goals, but it's about so much more. And I think that we forget that, that a lot of people hit these like summits that they've been trying to hit and they get there and they feel not great. Well, I want to talk about power because I think this is an interesting, as you were talking, you know, I think the thing about power and unhealthy versions of power, toxic versions of power, the person who buys the fancy car, I won't name a car, but let's say somebody buys a really fancy car. A fancy car is lovely. That's wonderful. Good for you. You you bought a fancy car, but they require an audience for that purchase, right? So, you know, so in Hollywood, I'm always giggling because what I don't think people are thinking through fully when they buy a really fancy car is you need my participation in this. <laughs> this is a this is a spectator sport that you're hoping people will, right, pay attention to you. On the stage of your expensive car, you've made it. How does, oh, good for you. There's this whole, right, like, architecture around it and do you care about cars or not i don't care about cars like i I don't i'm a point a to point b girl could care less like when i moved to la i got like a prius the tiny prius because it was like the cheapest option drive up to caa right because i'm driving everyone around all the time and every car at caa if you've not been to the creative arts agency is like a fancy car that's out front and I was just like, I find it very bizarre because I'm like, I like having a less nice car because also I feel safer. Like, I don't want to be a target. I think when you have a nicer car, other th- there's other elements Correct. and variables in play. But, but I'm very good in my right. little car. We're all good with it. So so this is just getting inside the panty drawer of Hollywood a little bit. And inside the panty drawer of Hollywood, of, of, of inside the panty drawer of power, forgive the analogy, you know, power wants to be seen, right? Power wants... So there's an asymmetry. There's a structural asymmetry with power. And I didn't get into this business for structural asymmetry. That wasn't why I got in. I didn't get into it to make such because somebody needs to feel big and I need to feel small or vice versa. I got into it for reciprocity and interdependence and wanting to make things that were cool and interesting and special and had maybe something sacred in them. And so the reality was I was trying to do that in a a place that our values were just not aligned at all. Whose fault is that? That's not Hollywood's fault. That was my fault. You know, that was me just not knowing. And so, you know, I mean, you've been to my house. Like, I'm, a, you know, I like, I like what I like. I'm unapologetic about what I like. I'm not that into power. No, I think, but I think this is a really important thing that was a big awakening for me last summer. What I sort of like, I forget what book it was that I was reading, but it was about, oh, you know what it was? What? It was Grandmaster... Oh, oh that cool. Yes. That thing you sent me, that was amazing. Um, I will, I will, we'll add it in. We'll add it, we'll add it in the show notes. Uh, Cause I can't think Denise of it right now. Denise finds the she, coolest stuff and this was no exception. I, yeah. I'm like always finding these interesting books. Anyways, she's this amazing, like the first female grand marshal. Grandmaster. 
Yeah, like amazing, amazing. So she wrote this book. And one of the things she talks about is that when there's two opposing values, like two opposing beliefs, right? You're, you're not going to, you're just going to create tension. Nothing like is going to come out of that. And so for me, what I realized with my company, at least, was I was like, I hold a very different set of beliefs than the system I'm trying to infiltrate. And so therefore, there's always going to be friction and it's not going to come to fruition in the way that, of course, so it seemed so obvious to me after reading this, I was like, this has been the thing, which I just didn't, I just thought, you know, because we grew up in a capitalistic patriarchal culture that like force, 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 I can will this thing to happen. And just like the law of energy, it was like, yeah, it's not going to in that way. And when you realize you're, I thought my incentives were aligned. I thought I want to make great movies that are very popular that felt like the, that was my mindset. I want to make great, really, I want to hide the medicine and the candy of entertainment and make healing and teaching through entertainment. That's what I want to do. Healing and teaching through entertainment. You know, do keep doing that. And I want lots of people to love it. And I want people to really love it. I want it to be things they see multiple times. Okay, check, 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 check. My incentives were not aligned. That is not what Hollywood is in the business of doing. No, I just found the quote. So I want to share it because great. I- I don't want to butcher her words. We'll add the book and the author in the show notes. If you feel a struggle when you exert your will, there may be old habits or false beliefs you need to let go of. The sense of struggling to hold an idea is a signal to you that you are simultaneously holding an equal opposite idea about what you want to manifest. When the energy of two equal and opposing ideas are given the same attention, you will naturally feel a conflict. Well, yeah, but I, and the problem for me in terms of the power asymmetry of Hollywood, right? Are they are there are structural asymmetries that prevent innovation, period. Yeah. They're they're just they 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 exist. They nobody has fixed them. They are still there. No, they don't want to fix them. I mean, well, that, that was that was a lot the of incentives what... aren't the, the the incentives for repair are not there yet. They're coming. It's probably going to come from a disruptive. It's going to come from something outside of the institutions, right? But yeah, the incentives aren't there. Yeah, no, I agree. It, it it's gonna it'll hit. It's naturally has to hit a breaking point. But I don't think we're we're quite there yet. But I want to be conscious of our time, so I want yeah, to move no, no, into. I'm are rapid fire questions. So just every guest, intuition, let it let it ride you. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? Oh, be kind to yourself. Take it easy. It's it's going to be okay. What is the last book you read? Oh, it's probably some UFO bullshit. <laughs> it's like, I think it's I'm looking at the day after Roswell by Colonel Corso, yeah. Yeah, if you want, if you're a UFO nerd, DM Jess because <laughs> she's she does she's got many many other passions like biohacking and UFOs. So you know this is just one dimension of the multi. Yeah, the wave. In, you know what? The wave integrity. Martha Beck, really good. The wave integrity. Her most recent book, fantastic. What are you struggling with right now? My health. My health has been a struggle, ongoing struggle for two years. Uh, nothing serious, everybody. Don't worry. But yeah, I've had some nagging mystery things that were unwinding and it's it's a pain in the ass, literally. <laughs> what is bringing you joy right now? My dog, uh, my yard, Kim Kranz archetypes deck. I love that deck. Kim Kranz is a national treasure and for anybody... That I read daily. You know, I'm, I'm looking at that almost daily. Really, Kim Cran's Archetype Deck is uh, brings me joy. Yeah. 
And she has these things called runes, which I only learned about recently. She, her runes. she released runes? I didn't no, know. No, your runes. Oh, my no, runes. Oh, yeah. You. No, those aren't mine. Those are ancient, Viking, Celtic. Yeah. I know, but I'd never experienced them. So this is what I say. Jess always has these really fun tools um, and new ones to share. I What's- love I never met an oracle I didn't want to try at least <laughs> once. What is the best advice you've ever received? Uh, so it's an advice, but it was kind of the statement of fact, which is content is queen, but context is God. And, you know, your content, you have to remember the context of your content always and be constantly recalibrating, 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 whether that's in a conversation with a person or making a movie for audiences or writing something, you have to remember the context that you're creating or collaborating in. It'll, that will always improve things when you can remember context. I'm going to run us through some of the key takeaways. There's a lot of good ones here, um, which I'm really excited about. Um, I love this phrase, which you said at the very beginning, about the testing of your own North Star. I thought that was such a beautiful way of talking about our purpose and our conviction and our path. And I just I just love that phrase. If you didn't get a yes, but someone kicked it up to their boss, you're still in play. I think that's a really good note for people that are feeling, you know, like the process is taking a long time. That's a really great piece of perspective to remember. The opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference. Hollywood is a dysfunctional boyfriend who's gaslighting me. That one I'm like... I'm like so real, so real. So for those of you, let don't don't be dismayed. There is uh this is every I think every industry. It's not just Hollywood, but it's just some of the stuff I think we all go through career wise. You were an advocate and benefactor of therapy very early on, which I think is really important. Probably really helped you navigate some of that challenging stuff. Wherever your curiosity has led you on your personal growth path, you would go there. And I think this is important for people to remember that if you have intuition or things like you want to explore, there's nothing wrong with curiosity and exploration and doesn't have to like mean anything or go anywhere. I mean, I read books all the time that I'm like, "Hmm, well, that was like a worthwhile time, but not necessarily a big aha or epiphany, but another thing to sort of add to the intellect bank. It's okay to hit the brakes. I think that's also really important in a, in a culture that rewards burnout. It's okay to, to take a break. It's okay to say, I, I need a minute. Um, and I think whatever's meant for you will always be for you. And I think the last thing we want to leave everyone is the difference between compliance and congruence. And to remember that, Jess, this has been such a treat uh. and truly, truly a lot of wisdom and gems here. And thank you so much for being so courageous and honest and vulnerable with us. I think that it it was really beautiful and it meant a lot to me. And I think people will really benefit from this conversation. Thank you, Denise. I love you. And I love this show. And thanks for having me on. It's always a pleasure. Thank you all for listening. You can listen and subscribe to Do The Work on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, anywhere you can listen to podcasts, you can find ours. It makes a huge difference if you could review, share, and rate this podcast. I want to give a big thank you to Entertainment Speakers Bureau and Angela, Wine Designs Media, Lenny Skolnick for the musical intro, Lindsay Johnson on the graphics, Olivia Christian on social. I'm so, so grateful. I hope you find or continue living in your purpose. 